This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Liberal Oasis podcast, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, Media Matters, The David Pakman Show, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Slate Magazine, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple, iOS, and Android app users from The Young Turks. Virginia judge's decision to throw out a central plank of the health insurance reform law shows just how ill-considered the Obama plan was. Forcing people to buy coverage from costly, unreliable, and often unscrupulous private insurance companies was, in fact, a coercive approach, as Judge Henry Hudson ruled, and it was one that the insurance companies loved because they were guaranteed tens of millions of new customers whom they could gouge. Rather than coercing everyone into the private insurance market, Obama should have proposed universal, comprehensive, and affordable health care, which is provided as a right to all citizens. This Medicare for All program, or at a bare minimum, Medicare for All who want it, wouldn't have been the boondoggle to the private insurance companies that the current law is, and it would have been impervious to court challenges. But Obama chose to saddle up with the private insurance companies. He imposed no federal limits on what they could charge, so they're already able to raise rates exorbitantly. And if Judge Hudson's decision is upheld by the Supreme Court, you can expect your rates to become totally unaffordable very soon if they aren't already. At which point, the wisdom of Medicare for All should be obvious to all. I want to mention is healthcare. Yeah. Because I mentioned a while back that what's been one of the things that's been overlooked in the bill is a provision that allows states to opt out right. of the the main reforms, particularly the individual mandate, mm-hmm. if they do something else. <laughs> that does seem to be the issue, doesn't right. it? Right. I mean, if a state is interested in okay, we got our own idea for expanding coverage and cutting right. and, and cutting costs. That doesn't follow the federal model. You can apply for a waiver mm-hmm. from the federal government. And say, hey, I got this plan. Give me, let me, give me a shot at doing it. And yeah. this, and all the indication of HHS is like, we're, we would love to see more state innovation. So sure. have at it. Sure. Um, and this was a provision that was written by Ron Wyden, Center from Oregon. So he's already getting Oregon on that he's track. On. Okay. Now he has now the way the bill was written. That provision, the waiver provision, kicks in 2017. Long time from now. Whereas the bulk of these reforms started in 2014. Okay. So there had there be a three-year lag before states could do their own thing. Okay. And so Wyden has partnered with our senator, Scott Brown. <laughs> Scott Brown. Of cosmopolitan fame. <laughs> to have the Wyden-Brown bill mm-hmm. that would move that date up from 2017 to 2014. Okay. Which is fairly mild, but mm-hmm. also significant in that the states would not have to tried out the federal way first. Right. Uh, now, Scott Brown, after he voted against the bill yeah. back in March, did an op-ed in the Boston Globe listing all the things they wanted to change about it that would still mm-hmm. fight for. Mm-hmm. And one of them was to, you know, not have a federal takeover of health care and allow the states to innovate. Uh-huh. Now, 
by joining on this bill, mm-hmm. in one sense he's following through on what he said he was going to do, but he's also acknowledging ever so quietly <laughs> that this bill is not a federal government takeover in the first place. Right. You can't have a federal government takeover that allows states to do their own thing. That doesn't really, yeah. And and the bill is not creating a waiver. It is saying this waiver exists. Right. It's acknowledging the reality this waiver exists mm-hmm. and just moving the date of application. Right. Um, so and it's pretty funny for Massachusetts because... Because we have that already. We already have it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's like, look, we already do our own thing. I mean, his platform was not individual mandates are bad. Yeah. It was, we already have one. We have one. And we don't want the federal version of it. Don't mess with what we've done. And it's just an extension of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mitt so Rom- he's full of shit, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, he, yes, he's full of shit. I don't think you say Scott Brown is awesome, but it's important to acknowledge that when he is tacitly acknowledging, talked to my kid one day. I know it's awful. <laughs> I had to scrub her down. He said Obamacare will kill your mom. He, he did. That's exactly. And he started to cry. It's awful. Um, Stupid Scott Brown. But it's, a, it's important to to get out there that this is a bill with lots of state flexibility in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and there's arguments you can make against having state flexibility. But it's so much easier to just say, ah, socialism, cut federal take over. We're all going to die. That's the bumper sticker. <laughs> and so now, the, if White and Brown are serious in pushing this, um, there's a, the question I might get to other Republicans. Okay, you say you want to change the health care bill. Your repeal fantasies aren't happening. Here's an actual constructive right. suggestion. Right. Are you going to get behind it or not? Because it would mean actually accepting the fact that this health care bill is, is here to stay. Yeah. Uh, so... There's there's still healthcare fights to be had, and this is a point that I made a while ago. I was actually copying Jay Rockefeller Center from West Virginia. The value of passing a bill in the first place, even if you didn't love it, even if you're on the left, and you didn't love it, mm-hmm. was to pass it meant you would keep fighting about it yes. every year and continually trying to improve it. Absolutely. Whereas if you failed altogether, they wouldn't touch the thing yeah. for 15 years. That's what bugged me so much about the fights about it. It was like, we just, can we just do something? <laughs> foot in the door. You just jam your foot in the door and then we can, yeah. And this is the thing with the Fed. Exactly. You know, with, um, Republicans are mad at the Fed for actually doing something. Right. But I'm also a little tweaked at Paul Krugman. Uh, I mean, Krugman was... was I'm sorry, wait, did you see your tweet, Adam? Tweets, tweet, a little tweet, a little tweet. I mean, I'm not angry, it's a little strong, a little tweet. Mm, all right. Um, a nipple tweet? I mean, he had a good column today criticizing, showing how Republicans are siding with China right. uh, against yeah. the Fed, and that's an important point. You know, they're both saying the Fed shouldn't do anything to rebalance American currency. Um, but Krugman was sort of getting on the Fed's case for not doing enough mm-hmm. when he had an earlier point uh, several months back saying the Fed should do something. <laughs> Because it's a jobs crisis, and yes, there's risks in doing anything. Right. But better to do something than nothing. The Fed does something. Right. At the, I mean, there's obviously, I mean, not that they shouldn't make any critique of it, but you could at least right. acknowledge, hey, they're at least trying to do something. You can do both, yeah. <laughs> and see how it goes and try to adjust as you go along. I mean, that's, right. that's, the, that's the best you can ever ask yeah. <laughs> of our governmental system. And usually the government tends to react slowly because of risks of doing things. Right. And, you know, thank God they're actually doing things right now. Yeah, I think that's just, again, big picture. Big picture, we're doing things. It's not all awesome. Quit being a pussy. Join our eagles one and try
the Onion Radio News. A freak accident paralyzes a man from the waist up. This is Doyle Redland reporting. A bizarre spinal injury sustained in a car accident outside Mesa, Arizona on Sunday has left local resident Roberto Montenegro paralyzed from the waist up. Dr. William Maxson, head of surgery at Mesa General Hospital, described Montenegro's condition this morning. Sadly, he can no longer speak, eat, dial a phone, open doors, or look sideways. The one bit of good news, however, is that Mr. Montenegro is back on his feet. Hospital officials added, though Montenegro's condition remains guarded at present, he should be able to resume his career as a professional soccer player as early as next week. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News online at the Onion. Two uh, pieces of news about healthcare in this country. First of all, California regulators have gone after Pacificare. They were bought by United Health Group, and when they were uh, bought a couple years back, uh, the United Health Group, which is actually the largest uh, health insurance company in the country, uh, said, "Oh no, no, no! Don't worry. We're going to pay a lot of attention to California. We're going to do everything right, and we're not going to, you know, uh, lessen uh, our." treatment of our clients and the doctors that work with us, etc. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. Come to find out it wasn't. Between 2006 and 2008, they uh, would routinely uh, mismanage medical claims, lose thousands of patients' documents, fail to pay doctors, and ignore calls to fix the problems. Now, why is that relevant? Because somebody gets a disease and they need to get surgery right away. And Pacific Care says, eh, sad day, I lost your documents. You're going to have to wait on that. Meanwhile, that person is getting sicker and sicker, and a lot of them die because they didn't get the treatment, right? Because they know, hey, if you die, I don't have to pay your bills. Now, that's really sick. And they know that if they don't pay the doctors, even after whatever procedure is done, that some percentage of the doctors will give up on it or some percentage of the doctors will take less. So these are the games they play with our lives and with our livelihood if you're in the medical profession, right? So you know what kind of fine uh, California has decided that they're going to go after uh, Pacific Care on? $9.9 billion. They're saying, we're coming for you. You know how many violations Pacific Care had in just that two-year period? Over a million. Now, you get a sense that this is a regular occurrence, that they do this on purpose to make more money while we all suffer, we get sicker, or sometimes we die? They don't give a damn. What did I tell you? Private insurance it's, is private. They're going to want to make a profit. And in healthcare, how do you make a profit? You pay less in terms of coverage, and you charge people more. And who gets screwed in between? We do. It is not something that private corporations will be good at doing because they'll be too good at making a profit off of it. And we've told you about CEOs of groups like this before who have made billions of dollars. The CEO makes billions and we don't get treatment. Now the second part is even more important. I told you that if we did health care reform, 
and we didn't control how much they can raise their premiums, that they would raise their premiums and they would blame the Democrats and health care. First of all, don't take my word for it. Here's a small clip, one of dozens I did at the time, from March of, uh, is it 2010 this year? Okay, let's watch. What did I tell you? I said they would immediately raise rates and they would blame it on the bill. And that's exactly and that's exactly what was happening back then, what's happening today. And I don't make this stuff up. Where do I get my so-called predictions from? I read the papers. They said they were going to raise the rates. That's why I said that back then. And logic indicated that they would because you didn't do anything to control it. And now it's finally coming to fruition, right? So they are putting what they said into action. Right before the election, two months before the election, here we have uh, regents... Uh, raising their rates by 17.1% on average. We've got the ODS health plan raising their rates by 20.73 on average. Celtic insurance, 18%. MMA, 4%. And then you see those little bars, the 3.4, etc. Those are what they're saying is due, that's the increase due to health care reform. We didn't want to increase your rates, but this terrible health care reform, of course, increased our costs. And we had to pass that cost on to you. So if you don't like that, vote Republican. That is, in essence, what they're telling you. Now, how do you like those deals you made with those groups, President Obama? Did that work out for you? You know what the Democrats comically said after health care reform passed? They said, no, that they think on average the rates would raise, uh, rise in the next year about 1%. <laughs> I laughed at them then. I laugh at them now. If you don't put anything in the law checking the rates and you put us at the mercy of these monopolies, they will raise our rates at their leisure. We don't have other choices. That's why we push for the public option, not because we're pinko commies, but because we can't pay our rates and we wanted a, an honest option where we can go and say, hey, you know what, I want to be covered. What is the rate you're going to charge me without your CEO making a billion dollars? And if you have that option, you might not even have to exercise it because then private insurance would have to compete and they can't keep raising the rates over and over again. But we didn't fix the essence of it. We didn't fix the core of the problem. So they're doing exactly what I told you they'd be doing. They continue to raise our rates and blame health care reform for it. Now does it look like it's mission accomplished? Now do you see why I didn't like the reform package in the first place? This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. PolitiFact recently named the phrase government takeover of healthcare as its 2010 lie of the year. While the fact-checking website focused on the politicians who pushed the lie, we noticed that Fox News played a pretty significant role in promoting this whopper. And let what critics say is a liberal big government takeover of health care advance unabated. It's a new name for the public option, which is really government-run health care. That's what the name should government takeover. be. Yes, he has taken the uh, first step towards socialization, total government control of our health care system. We are moving into pretty much an all-over takeover of health care, and people just need to sit back and prepare for it. If you think we should have more government-run health care, listen to this. And of course, we report, you decide.
is Deadly Spin, and the author is Wendell Potter, who we sat down with briefly in Cleveland over the summer. And, Wendell, I read as much of the book as I could over the last couple of days. I got through about 200 pages, which is really the majority of it. And, number one, it's, it's sad that you have to write this book, but congratulations on the way you wrote it and what you tell, because I was compelled. I could literally barely put it down. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, there's a few questions I have just about, you go through your background uh, in college and then kind of starting in journalism um, and then how you worked into public relations and eventually into healthcare. Growing up politically, were you a liberal guy, a conservative guy? I mean, I know you mentioned you worked uh, briefly for a Democratic candidate in Tennessee, I believe it was, but what were your politics growing up? Yeah, I come from probably the, one of the most Republican parts of the country, uh, uh, northeast Tennessee, which uh, uh, traces its republicanism back to the Civil War when that part of Tennessee did not want to secede from the Union. Uh, so there were Union sympathizers. And that's, that's, that, my folks are, are from uh, uh, that part of the country. It's where I spent the first you know, few years of my life. My, I think every re- relative that I know of is a Republican. So, um, and it's culturally conservative as well. And you describe a number of different ways to kind of uh, keep profits as high as possible. Policy rescission is one we've heard about a lot recently, which is uh, going back to people's initial applications, people in theory who are now making uh, significant uh, claims for, for care, and finding reasons to essentially say, you know what, you weren't completely honest. And it might be something as simple as saying, you know, I never included that I once had heartburn when I was 15 years younger. Right. Is that the number, the most uh, uh, ominous tactic that was used, or what else was done? Well, that was one. In fact, uh, a woman testified before Congress that uh, her insurer canceled her coverage when she was in the midst of treatment for breast cancer uh, for failing to disclose that she had, had 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 acne at some point in the recent past. Wow. Um, and so she was left to you know pay all those medical bills, which clearly uh, can get into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, the Another thing uh, is what's called purging, and uh, this is a, a practice that the industry uses to get rid of actually uh, small businesses that are customers. Uh, small businesses uh, largely have to pay more for their coverage than big insurance companies do on a per capita basis, and uh, uh, their claim experience can be skewed pretty easily if one person gets sick. Uh, and, and when that happens, uh, when that book of business comes up for renewal, the insurance company will largely jack the rates up so much that the, uh, uh, the, the small business will have no alternative but to drop coverage for everybody enrolled uh, in that benefit plan. Uh, what we, as a consequence of this, uh, we're seeing that more and more people are joining the ranks of the uninsured. Uh, the practices of the insurance industry over these years has really uh, uh, run off a lot of business and uh, they only want to, if, if they can at all, insure people who won't need their, their, ser- their services. So were you privy to decisions or discussions about, you know, we really need to keep the, the medical loss ratio as low as possible, uh, let's pick a specific diagnosis that we know is very expensive for us and see how many people we can weed out? I mean, was it that, that pervasive? Well, it's, 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 it's pervasive in the culture. Uh, everybody who works for a big corporations like, like Cigna or Humana or WellPoint or, or uh, uh, one of the other big companies, you understand that you have some, some role to play in making sure that your company meets Wall Street's expectations from both a, a profit and a medical loss perspective. Uh, and say, for example, you're a medical director. You're just, if you're a medical director, you're just as much of a corporate employee as I was as head of corporate PR. 
and you know that you've got your, your role to play to make sure that you don't disappoint Wall Street. So it's not necessarily that you get a memo saying let's 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 uh, clamp down on uh, claims for this particular diagnosis, uh, but you know that uh, over the course of the quarter you need to pay attention to uh, what you're approving or or not approving for coverage. You know, you you were recently on the Keith Olbermann show, and I watched it with great interest. Uh, you were alongside Michael Moore, and in the book, you describe how you actually you you were number one, uh, very upfront about how worried a lot of the companies like Cigna and other insurers were about the movie Sicko coming out. And you actually talk about going to Sacramento, I believe it was, and sitting in the back and taking notes during a screening of Sicko. And internally, you were conflicted. I mean, you you thought that the movie actually represented pretty accurately a lot of what was wrong with the health insurance system. Uh, you've, you've now, uh, on, with Keith Olbermann, you apologized to Michael Moore. When you now look back at the sicko incident, you also describe in the book going to a free care clinic, and I believe it was Tennessee, where people were literally put in animal stalls, and only about a third of the people that showed up were even able to get care. When you look back now, is there a specific point that you say pushed you over the edge? All those contributed, uh, certainly, and uh, I think there was, there was one other incident that probably pushed me over the edge that you might not even have gotten to in the book yet. It's, uh, it involved a 17-year-old girl in California uh, whose doctors said needed to have a liver transplant. She uh, had had leukemia. Uh, it was in remission for some time, but it came back, and um, Cigna would not approve coverage for the liver transplant. Uh, and her doctors immediately uh, submitted a renewed request and, and with additional documentation uh, and told Cigna that from and their experience, uh, Nataline Sarkeesian, uh, the 17-year-old girl's name, uh, that she would have a 65% chance of living five years if she had the transplant. Uh, Cigna's corporate uh, uh, medical director disagreed and uh, refused to, to provide coverage for it. Uh, the family didn't have the financial means to pay for it out of their own pocket. And um, so consequently, uh, she was, you know, days and days went by uh, while the, the, the family was appealing that decision. They were able to uh, bring a lot of uh, uh, public pressure on Cigna. They were savvy enough to get the media involved in paying attention to this case. Uh, eventually, Cigna, because of the public pressure, decided to uh, uh, pay for the coverage, but it was too late. So they announced it. They communicated that to the family. The family was uh, just joyous to, to, to finally get that news, but it came too late, and Natalie died just hours after the family got the news that Cigna had changed its mind. Uh, and, and I was the person on the front lines handling the calls from reporters. Media all over the world, actually, uh, were picking up on this story. And uh, mm. I just, uh, I'd handle what we call high-profile cases in the past involving Cigna um, uh, members or Humana members that uh, uh, had gone to the media for one reason or another. Uh, this was just one that I, I, I said, I can't do this anymore. And uh, we, within you know, a few weeks, I had uh, turned in my resignation. Uh, you also talk about seeing some of the talking points you helped develop repeated on television. Uh, you talk about, I think at the very beginning of the book, sometimes you feel that you may have contributed to the deaths of, of, of thousands, I believe you actually say. Um, do you feel, uh, what, I mean, talk about that a little bit. How, are you at peace, in, in a sense, with what you did? Uh, how do you view it all? 
you know, you can't go back and change the past. Right. I've had some uh, people who've, who've been critical of me for uh, having done what I what I did, and uh, you know, I, I can't I can't undo that. And to a certain extent, I can't regret it either, because if I didn't have if I didn't do what I did, if I hadn't had the career I had, then I wouldn't know what I know, and I wouldn't have been an insider who could speak out. I'm doing something that no one else has really done, uh, and um, I've, I'm hoping that I've been able to make a difference just by helping to educate people really what goes on behind the scenes in a way that only a former insider can do. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I certainly regret that anyone has lost uh, a loved one or, uh, uh, or, or one's own life uh, because of the practices of the health insurance industry that, that I helped perpetuate. Uh, I can't change that. I regret it. And, and to a certain extent, I, I see what I'm doing as making amends. Do you uh, do you worry about your your Do you think you're personally in danger because of some of the speaking out that you're doing, naming names in many cases? Do you think there's a risk of of, of retaliation? Oh, I do. Uh, before I gave my Senate testimony, that was the thing that that uh, concerned me most. That I would be was really putting my life on the line here, and, and I was going to be in danger. It might have been somewhat paranoia, and it's also just we're, we're all motivated by fear, and we're, we're fearing change of any kind, but something that dramatic, um, we really are afraid of, of taking that final step. Uh, but yeah, these, these are, we're talking about big money here. Scott Tissue that I wish you saw Sarcastic Mr. Know-It-All I'll close your eyes and I'll kiss you Cause with the birds I'll share Doctors may have a cure for head bonk amnesia. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. Doctors at UCLA announced today that a second hijinks-induced head bonk may be effective in the battle against head bonk amnesia, according to researcher Dr. Clayton Yates. Our research indicates that head bonk amnesia may be reversed with the application of a second zany head bonk of equal or greater severity. Potential side effects of the controversial new cure include clown horn honking sound effects and hallucinations of birds flying in a circular pattern around a patient's skull. Doyle Redlin for the Onion Radio News online and the Onion Ain't no roses gonna do. I'm gonna get myself a bluebird to remind me of you. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Conservative Talk Show host is Rush Limbaugh, uh, and he's got some unique ideas on uh, health care and uh, fighting Obama's health care reform, uh, bipartisanship, and then pre existing conditions. I love that at the end. 
He's going to be talking to a caller here. Let's listen in, and then we'll uh, talk about his uh, wonderful ideas. No, we can't repeal health care outright, but uh, the approach I've been hearing is people want to defund parts of it. That's all like, we can do right now, and which is fine. You know, let's go ahead and do that. Let's defund what we can. But they also might try to repeal to make a statement and just to force uh, Barack Obama to veto it. But to me, it seems a better approach would be for the Republicans to rep propose a replacement bill to say, you know, here's our ideas. You know, let's have the debate we should have had. You know, here, let's find the common ground and actually put a bill together, put it out there. And something that, uh, you know, not talking about compromise, we're talking about common ground here. Uh, it's something that even the moderate Dems might be able to embrace. Well, now, uh... Uh, okay, we got the Democrat health care bill, all right? We know what it is. Correct. Would you tell me what in it you want to compromise with? What part, of it, what part of it do you want to keep? Well, there's things like, you know, once you have your insurance that uh, if you get sick, you can't be canceled. Um, you know, things like that. There, there are some things that not necessarily what's in that bill that we want to keep, but... Uh, we do know that there can be improvements to health care, so let's put out... Yeah, but, but you don't accept their premise, and, and it, look, at that is the fastest way for Republicans to squander everything they've won, is to start talking about, well, let's repeal and replace, let's just, let's tinker around the margins of this thing. We, we have a pretty good framework here, we know that health care needs to be reformed, let's find some things in this boondoggle that we like, like premiums going down, uh, kids getting covered till they're 26, all of that's a bunch of BS. No premiums are going down. The, 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 the idea of the pre-existing condition stuff, let me... <clears throat> patience rush, patience. Pre-existing condition coverage is not possible. It's not insurance, it's welfare. The idea of requiring insurance companies to cover people pre-existing conditions is a recipe for driving them out of business. The whole point of the Democrat health care bill is to drive the private sector insurance and as much of private sector health care out of business as possible so that it has no place to go other than the federal government. All right, well, there's so much to tackle there. First of all, uh, as President Obama continues to try to reach out to these people, does it look like they're in the mood for compromise? <laughs> Did you hear him there? He's like, there is no part of this bill he likes. So, I mean, 30 million new people covered. No, that's a terrible thing. Of course, they shouldn't be covered. No new person should be covered. Uh, children with pre-existing conditions are covered. Well, you know, there's those insurance companies that were saying your children is born too fat or too little, and so we're going to call that a pre-existing condition and deny them health care. So I guess Rush thinks that's welfare if you cover a kid who was just born and didn't do anything wrong at all. And then you go to the heart of his uh, argument, which is that if you have a pre-existing condition, if we give you health insurance, that's welfare. All right, so let's think about that for a second. So if you have a pre-existing condition, whatever it might be, Russ says you cannot get private insurance. You, we can't force them to give you private insurance. Okay, well then, is Russia in favor of a public option? <laughs> of course not, right? So you can't get public insurance, you can't get private insurance, you can't get insurance. So if you're not obscenely wealthy, which unfortunately Russia is, so I guess it's no skin off his fat ass, but if you're not in Russia's condition, well, and you got some sort of sickness, and a lot of us do. I mean, how many of us have pre-existing conditions at this point? A great number, right? 
Well, too bad. You don't get insurance. And if you don't have millions of dollars and you get a problem, that's it. You die. You die. You don't even have a choice. You can't even get it. So what? Giving it to you would be welfare. No, the whole point of insurance is that you pool together your, your funds in case somebody gets sick. Now, see, you're not doing it out of the benefit, you know, out of the goodness of your own heart. You're doing it because you're that's how insurance works. In case you get sick, in case you wind up getting a condition, which then later gets called a pre-existing condition. And these people have no heart whatsoever. And they also have no sense. I mean, I guess if you make $50 million a year or whatever, you don't need anything. You don't need insurance. Russia doesn't even have insurance. But for the rest of us who do need insurance, who don't have millions of dollars, he, he, he wants to deny it. He doesn't want to change any of it. Ah, come on, man. This is so-called free market capitalism run amok because the real reason is Rush doesn't give a damn about you. Now he's graying an old, bullish and bold, fitting the mold, telling tales of shares that he sold, money that rolled, power he holds. He's proud and likes to tell you loud exactly how he's wealthy now. How as a man, he made a plan, couldn't be, and also ran. But when the working day is done, he's run out of ideas for fun. He feels as if he isn't sure exactly what that money's for. Money's not for spending, like lives are not for ending. He can't let go of all that he's accrued. He just has to do something. And he doesn't know what to do. First man to be denied an organ transplant by the Arizona Republican death panel died on Sunday. The death of Mark Price, a father not yet 40, was caused by complications related to his leukemia and chemotherapy. Chemotherapy which had to succeed before his bone marrow transplant could take place. The death panel therefore not responsible in this case for Price's death. But in our third story tonight, the head of the death panel, Arizona Governor Jan Brewer, reacted to Mr. Price's passing, to his crusade against the state's decision stripping coverage for these transplants, defended her death panel, and explained that Arizona's death panel considers life-saving organ transplants optional. Don't take my interpretation for it. Listen to Governor Brewer herself less than 24 hours after Mr. Price passed away, giving the death panel rationale for rationing care because organ transplants are, quote, optional. The state only has so much money and we can only provide uh, so many optional kinds of care. And um, those were one of the options that we had taken liberty to uh, discard, to dismiss. We have reported on this news hour about Arizona families abandoned by the governor's death panel. Fathers Francisco Felix and Randy Shepard stripped of their state Medicaid coverage of the organ transplants they need, liver and heart. They are hardly the only ones. An estimated 95 other people in Arizona right now are waiting for life-saving organs. 95 people who will be denied them because life, because Arizona's Republican legislature and Republican governor decided earlier this year to remove those transplants from state Medicaid coverage. That decision based on false information provided by two companies. One of them owned by United Healthcare, including claims that many of the transplants do not work. Transplants including bone marrow. Even though some Republican legislators acknowledge the lie beneath their vote and are calling for a re-vote on the issue, Governor Brewer has rejected bipartisan calls for a special session of the legislature to fix her mess at a cost of about $5 million, claiming that she cannot use any of the more than $30 million in stimulus funds she has because those funds, she says, have already been allocated elsewhere. Allocated, not spent. Allocated how? She refuses to say, so far not complying with requests for public records by local newspapers and others. Allocated by Brewer as recently as two days before she yanked the transplant money to instead spend it on things like a $2 million center to study algae as an alternative fuel. 
responding to the Price's death and his family's crusade for the state to cover more people. Governor Brewer called for a different kind of response, a special election to cut more people from state Medicaid. 300,000 to be left without any insurance whatsoever. Now it cuts like a knife But it feels so Hey everyone, so I've literally never had to do this before, but I have to interrupt the show today to say that although I think the previous clip by Countdown was good, it was an important story that needed to be talked about, worthy of inclusion in the show, uh, I have to say that I despised Olbermann's use of algae fuel research as an example basically of what he was saying was uh, you know silly, wasteful spending happening in Arizona. Allocated by Brewer as recently as two days before she yanked the transplant money to instead spend it on things like a $2 million center to study algae as an alternative fuel. Now, you know, I'm not an expert, but my understanding is that algae is one of the single most promising areas in the field of alternative fuel research. And so for him to use that of all things he could have chosen to say, you know, so dismissively and use it as his example of silly, wasteful spending, I think was completely misguided. So I want to play one quick thing for you on uh, on algae, and then we'll get back to the regular show on healthcare. For more information on uh, algae research, the best place to start, I highly recommend the documentary film Fuel. You can find details on that at thefuelfilm.com. And then there's algae. It produces lipids, basically vegetable oil, and a lot of it. In labs across the country, beakers of algae are being shaken and stirred as scientists look for the perfect strain to yield the most oil. Glenn Kurtz has his hanging in a sort of greenhouse. All it takes to grow is water, sun, and carbon dioxide. Algae, I can go up to 20,000 gallons of oil per acre per year. And that's just in an open pond system. These alternative fuels are still in the experimental phase, but experts believe in the next decade they could cut our fuel consumption by 10 to 20 percent. The latest figures on the uninsured are in and they're not pretty. Last year, the number of uninsured Americans rose to a record 50 million people. A majority of these were in working families, but their employers weren't offering them health insurance. Many other adult Americans fell into the ranks of the uninsured after losing their jobs. All this according to a new report by the Kaiser Commission on Medicaid and the Uninsured. The results, the report says, can be fatal. The uninsured are more likely to be hospitalized for conditions that could have been prevented and are more likely to die in the hospital than those with insurance, it notes. And being uninsured can bust people financially. Uninsured families already struggle to meet basic needs, the report says, and medical bills even for minor problems can quickly lead to medical debt. That's not news, I suppose, but it's still an enormous scandal. President Obama's health care reform will end up covering about 32 million people, but that won't start happening until 2014. And even after full implementation, our health care system will still leave millions upon millions of people without health care, causing them needless pain and suffering. We've just got to do better than that.
Today's story is called McSurance, Crap Health Coverage Wins a Regulatory Victory, and it's written by Timothy Noah. So how's this for a deal? You pay me $13.09 a week. In exchange, I'll pay your medical bills, but only up to $2,000 a year. Maybe that deal makes sense if you know with absolute certainty that your medical expenses in the coming year will fall between $680.68, which is $13.09 each week for 52 weeks, and $2,000. It makes no sense at all if there's the slightest chance you might end up in the hospital. True, if your hospital expenses exceed $2,000, you'll have lowered the bill by about $1,300. But $1,300 won't likely cover even the cost of an ambulance, much less anything that happens after you arrive. You'd be better off using that $13.09 to buy yourself a weekly lottery ticket. What I'm describing is an actual health insurance policy. Its technical name is Mini-MedPlan, but more commonly it goes by the term crap health insurance. The specific plan described here is what McDonald's offers unmarried new recruits, and the Health and Human Services Department just granted it a temporary waiver. McDonald's also offers slightly more generous plans at slightly higher cost. For instance, $24 per week for a policy with a $5,000 ceiling and $32 per week for a policy with a $10,000 ceiling. Healthcare reform is all about replacing such bait-and-switch schemes with real health insurance. That should indeed happen in 2014 when state health insurance exchanges start selling federally subsidized policies offering a minimum standard of coverage that will not permit, for example, putting a $2,000 ceiling on payouts. But it was supposed to happen sooner. Annual limits on payouts are already being phased out under the health care law. As of September 23rd, they aren't allowed to fall below $750,000, which is a whole lot more than McDonald's $2,000, $5,000, or $10,000. But HHS signaled it was willing to grant waivers to mini-meds. Then the mini-meds fell afoul of another pending regulation concerning the medical loss ratio, that is, how much revenue insurers spend on health benefits, as opposed to overhead or dividends to stockholders. The rule requires health insurers to spend between 80% and 85% of their revenue on medical care. No can do, McDonald's told HHS in an email obtained by the Wall Street Journal's Janet Adamy. The high turnover rate among McDonald's employees, the company said, occasions lots and lots of paperwork. So we can't keep our administrative costs down relative to our payouts, which, in case you hadn't noticed, are pretty darn low to begin with. On these dubious grounds... HHS granted the mini-meds an exemption through 2011 that could easily stretch to 2014. The Journal reported that McDonald's was threatening to drop its health care plan if it didn't get its exemption. That would seem an accurate interpretation of McDonald's assertions that the cost of the medical loss ratio would be economically prohibitive for our carrier, and that having to drop our current mini-med offering would represent a huge disruption to our 29,500 participants. But it elicited huffy denials not only from McDonald's, which said that media reports stating they plan to drop health care coverage for their employees are purely speculative and misleading, but also weirdly from HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, who said it was flat-out wrong. Why lie to protect McDonald's? Sebelius could have said, Yes, McDonald's says it may not offer health insurance to its workers anymore, 
but what they call health insurance wouldn't meet the fiduciary standards of a second-rate Christmas club. Why didn't she say that? Because McDonald's was smart enough to know where the Obama administration is vulnerable. If you like your insurance plan, you will keep it, President Obama said, right after he signed the health reform bill. No one will be able to take that away from you. That had been Obama's mantra since the 2008 presidential campaign, because he knew people worried about losing what they had. For the most part, Obama kept his promise. But if HHS had stood up to McDonald's and said, sorry, paying no more than $2,000 in medical benefits is not our idea of insurance, and if McDonald's, as a consequence, had stopped offering its preposterously stingy mini-med plan, then McDonald's would arguably have won the right to call Obama a liar, simply because Obama never thought to add the imminently reasonable caveat, unless, of course, your health plan is utter crap. Not even the insurance industry considers mini-med plans to constitute real health insurance. The National Association of Health Underwriters says mini-meds are not intended to replace comprehensive coverage. Then why do employers offer them? Because, the underwriters explain, perhaps a little too frankly, not providing insurance can have a dramatic impact on employee recruiting and retention. If employees don't get health insurance, they'll leave. To keep them, employers like McDonald's offer ersatz insurance. The temporary relief afforded mini-meds may be no big deal if the industry is going to be extinguished a little more than three years from now anyway. But will it be extinguished? In Washington, one waiver often leads to another. Assuming he's still president, Obama can just as easily be called a liar when the insurance exchanges put McSurance out of business in 2014. The only difference is that employees of McDonald's and other companies with mini-med plans, they're especially big in retail, will have someplace else to go. Will Obama in 2014 have the guts to tell the mini-med providers that the jig is up? I hope so. If the president in 2014 isn't Obama, but rather Obama's GOP opponent from 2012, will President Republican shut down a still thriving mini-med racket? Don't bet on it. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jess Levin. Will the myth of death panels ever die? After some time out of the spotlight, Sarah Palin's greatest political lie has reared its ugly head. The so-called death panels. You remember them. They're groups of healthcare professionals whom the federal government would pay to tell grandma and grandpa, which would someday be all of us, how and when to die. And uh, these end-of-life counseling sessions appear to be less voluntary than the administration would say. The dirty little secret here is that the death panels are in full play. They're back. Death panels are full-fledged empowered here. This is health care rationing. Numerous news and fact-checking organizations have debunked the claim. 
PolitiFact said the provision in question would have simply allowed Medicare to pay for doctor's appointments for patients to discuss living wills and other end-of-life issues. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot button issues we face, maintaining a rock solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth five bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. an idea that seems near perfect on paper turn into a lie and then turn into a policy despite the lie and then turn back into a lie well let's start with the idea turns out that end-of-life care is really expensive according to one study a third of all Medicare spending is spent in the last year of life and of that one-third is spent in the final month so here's where the near-perfect idea comes in it also turns out if you have a conversation about end-of-life care with your doctor you end up getting more effective less wasteful care without any impact on your life expectancy so spend less money get better care no side effects it's a negative effects whatsoever but wait that's not all it gets even better because in Washington the icing to any idea cake is a thick layer of bipartisan support which end-of-life planning had. Here's the Medicare End-of-Life Care Planning Act of 2007, sponsored by a Democrat and co-sponsored by Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson. So that's the near-perfect idea. Reimburse doctors for the time they spend talking to patients about what kind of end-of-life care they want. And that idea was part of the Obama administration's health reform plan until this happened. Be saying, no, you can't give this person a hip replacement, they're too old. This will be done by this federal board, right. uh, which is really the sure. death panel that Sarah Palin was talking about. Death panels, yes, back in the news again. He warned Americans about so-called death panels. Those death panels, which created a big controversy. Thus, a near-perfect idea became a lie in what, what was that, 30 seconds? So the money-saving, eminently humane, formerly bipartisan idea was taken out of the health reform bill signed into law last year. But remember, that's not the end of the story. The near-perfect idea became a lie, but then, amazingly, it turned into a policy. Wait, what? Yes, yes, thanks to a provisional change in Medicare regulation last month, quote, the government will pay doctors who advise patients on options for end-of-life care. A near-perfect idea to a lie to a policy, and then today, apparently haunted by the specter of another round of pulling the plug on grandma, the Obama administration reversed itself. In new Medicare regulations, the explicit inclusion of end-of-life care as part of Medicare reimbursement has been rescinded. And honestly, who can blame the White House for wanting to avoid the whole death panel thing again when it's busy defending all of health reform from the new Republican Congress that wants to repeal it? This is symbolic. They understand that this is not going to land on the president's desk. Uh, it's not likely to pass... Uh, the Senate, that this is uh, a bit of huff and puff. What this means is 
going back to a healthcare system where insurance companies are in charge and call the shots. Where a child that is sick with a pre-existing condition doesn't have to get coverage in the greatest, strongest, most powerful country on the planet. Where seniors don't get help with their prescription drug costs. A near-perfect idea to a lie to a policy and back to a lie which was celebrated in an email blast today by the right-wing activist who carted around the health care bill and led the whole death panel canard. When Betsy McCoy is applauding the Obama administration, you know Mercury is in retrograde or something more worldly is amiss. Joining us now is Dr. Atul Gawande, surgeon, staff writer of The New Yorker and author of many books, including The Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Right, which is now out in paperback. Dr. Gawande, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you've written quite eloquently and extensively on end-of-life care. What do you make of this, the, the arc of end-of-life care policy that we've just laid out? It is a travesty. Um, the, the struggle to me as a doctor is seeing what has become this history, which you neatly outlined, of studies over the last couple of years that show that when patients have m more time with their doctors and actually have a discussion, especially a terminally ill patient, about their needs as they near the end of life, they get better care, they, they arrive at better decisions, they're less likely to die in a hospital or in an ICU. And some striking information, including a study this summer showing that, for example, advanced lung cancer patients who uh, end up having discussions with palliative care physicians, end up choosing hospice earlier in the course of care, less likely to choose the, uh, that fourth round of chemotherapy, less likely end up in the ICU, and guess what? they actually lived 25% longer by avoiding and coming to good decisions about avoiding aggressive care that was, actually, was harming them more than helping them. And here, we're equating these kinds of discussions and the compensation to allow, to, to uh, make it so that doctors are paid to have longer conversations than we do in our, in our 20 minute typical visits that are the expectations of care. Um, having that uh, opportunity become a debate over death panels, uh, a way of branding an entire legislative package um, is ending up leading to a, a process that will hurt patients. It sounds to me um, like from, from what I've gotten from the White House today as they've kind of been dealing with this time story, it looks like in terms of what they've done in terms of these, these, these reg regulations, you can still, doctors obviously can still be reimbursed for patient visits in which end-of-life care is discussed. So it's not like this has been prohibited. It's just that they're not sort of explicitly identifying it as something that Medicare is going to reimburse. Is that, is that right about the policy? Yeah, that's right. I, I'm a cancer surgeon. I have conversations with my patients about right. their end-of-life frequently. Um, but I wrote, wrote a story about a 35-year-old patient of mine who had a, um, uh, I was one of the doctors on her team, she had a lung cancer uh, that was found to be incurable and diagnosed in the eighth month of her uh, pregnancy with her first child and her, it turned out to be her only child. And as you walk through what are all the barriers that came between us and providing good care at the end of life, there were a variety of barriers. One is that there was uh, no one who um, uh, we 
it wasn't just that payments were preventing us from having end-of-life care conversations. It was also the fact that the, these are conversations that no one wants to quite have in a serious way. These are emotional uh, discussions, they take time, and they're really hard to do. I had avoided it um, with this patient because uh, I just didn't want to talk about the reality that we all knew that, that she wouldn't make it through the year. So the um, and, and the result was she died in the place that she didn't want to, going back and forth in the hospital and ultimately spending her last days in the hospital rather than with her uh, still not quite one-year-old child. The, the, the truth here is we are in a system of care that does not um, provide great care for patients with terminal illness. Um, when you have terminal illness, few of the patients are guided to understand the clear options there are early enough to recognize what's the best time to choose, say, hospice care, when's the best time to avoid aggressive treatment. And we need policies as well as teaching that start shifting that norm. And the Deaf Panels Conversations has chilled that entire conversation. Dr. Atul Gawande, surgeon, staff writer at The New Yorker, author of The Checklist Manifesto. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. It was really great to talk to you. It's great to be on. One final note for you guys today, and it's on health care. We were told during the reform effort that the insurance companies were doing the best they could, and that they had to keep raising our premiums because they were so squeezed on costs. Well, the profit statements for the top 10 health insurance firms are out for the first three quarters of this year. And you're gonna be shocked to find out that they actually made a great deal of money in profit. Huh, didn't see that coming. Combined, they made over $9.3 billion in profits, and that doesn't even count the last three months of this year. And their profits went up a whopping 41% in the last year alone. What happened? I thought they were telling us how much they were suffering and how much Obama busted them up. It turns out they continue to make money at a phenomenal rate. Now, some will say, wait, 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 wait. They're supposed to do that. They're not nonprofits. They're supposed to make money. Well, that's right. But that's exactly my point. Do we really want to leave our decisions about our health and our lives to a corporation whose sole purpose is to make money off of us? They get billions in profits by taking in more money from us than they pay out for our care. I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense, but I do know that I'd love another option. By the way, the outgoing head of the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, Democratic Congressman Pete Stark, has asked them to return their profits in the form of premium reductions for you guys. What do you think the chances that's going to happen? Not very high. I'm going to warn you right now. Don't hold your breath. Besides, if you get hurt doing that, they ain't going to cover that either.
Hi, Jay. It's Moses out in Portland, Oregon. Love your show. Hey, I was going to call you a few weeks back when you, you played uh, um, calls from the uh, guy requesting funds for the um, Shih Tzu um, rescue group and followed by the drywaller. Um, I was amazed that you gave the Shih Tzu guy uh, all that time to read his uh, pre-printed uh, spiel. But uh, the drywaller was really entertaining and made up for it. And got a lot more points in my book. And I was going to call you uh, about the situation with the police killing people here in Portland, but uh, I, I refrained. And then today I heard the call from Spokane. Just want to let you know that uh, they're dropping like flies out here. If you're uh, mentally ill and homeless and unarmed, um, don't mess with the cops. Anyway, um, as far as uh, supporting good groups, there's uh, two groups here in Portland. One is called uh, Rose City Cop Watch. And the other one is called uh, Portland, uh, PortlandCopWatch.com. Anyway, and uh, the last group is Fire Fresh Hour, F-I-R-E-F-R-A-S-H-O-U-R at gmail.com. And uh, the last group is the one that I would recommend you get a hold of and support fiscally. All right. Hey, thanks again for the show. Take care, bro. Hey, how you doing? This is Art from San Diego, and I just have a quick question. How come when WikiLeaks releases secret documents, certain people cry out that WikiLeaks is putting lives at risk and that Assange should be assassinated? But when a member of Congress is shot because of that type of violent rhetoric, those same people will not only repudiate the act, but then scoff at the idea that they have that what they may have said in the past may bear a hint of responsibility. And food for thought. Thank you. Hey Jay, it's Moses again. I'm sorry I didn't have my information straight when I uh, left my previous voicemail. But yeah, um, rosecitycopwatch.org and portlandcopwatch.org. And the group that uh, I'm involved with uh, cursorily is Fire Fresh Hour. And uh, the address that I listed in my previous voicemail is correct. So um, all those groups could use support. And um, speaking of support, I, um, I'm committing to uh, send you some money. So you should see something from me uh, soon. So... Right on, dude. Keep up the good work. Later. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show yourself, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And today, I'm just going to remind you, as I have been, uh, to either sign up or continue uh, to vote for the progressive slate of candidates who are vying to win you know, real money from one of our giant corporate overlords. The idea behind this is uh, you know, some individuals and, uh, and real nonprofit organizations have banded together to promote themselves and each other. All of these organizations, I can practically guarantee that you will wholeheartedly support their, uh, their main purpose and mission statements. So they are uh, promoting themselves to win uh, what basically breaks down into a voting contest. People vote for which uh, you know which organizations are most worthy to win real money to fund their their you know real projects that make real difference in the world, and uh, and so anyone can go and vote 
So that is what I'm uh, advising you do exactly. And so they've made it really easy for you. Ten of these progressive organizations have banded together and created what they are referring to as the progressive slate. You can find exactly what I'm referring to by following the link. Just type in. It's a bit.ly link. So B-I-T dot L-Y slash progressive slate. It's also in the show notes of the show. It's posted on the website. It's embedded in the audio file you're listening to right now. You can look at your screen probably of whatever you're uh, listening to and see in the show notes that link is posted right there. So bit.ly slash progressive slate, and that will lead you right to where you can sign up to get an email reminder to vote for them every day. And so that you can vote, uh, you know, you, you can cast 10 votes each day, one for each organization. And you can do that, you know, every day through the end of the month when the prize money will be given out. Uh, the one organization I've talked most about, probably my, uh, my favorite of the group, is called the Energy Action Coalition. Uh, they're putting together a power shift, a, a giant conference in Washington, D.C. for youth to come and uh, get inspired and engaged in the climate movement, essentially. And so and right now, as I'm speaking, they uh, are in first place to win fifty thousand dollars through this competition. And if they hold on to that, that money is going to be spent to uh, to provide scholarship money for individuals to come to PowerShift in the beginning of April. So that's just a really concrete way for you to understand what I'm advocating here. Uh, you know, that's actual money they can win that would actually pay for individuals, maybe even some of you. I've encouraged you to, to look into going to PowerShift uh, to get the details on that. Check out PowerShift2011.org. And it's the sort of thing that they don't want it to be restricted to people who uh, can afford to get themselves there. If you cannot afford to get yourself there, they provide scholarships, and this competition for the Progressive Slate could provide $50,000 in scholarships and so on and so on. You get the idea of why I think this is uh, you know, a, a important thing, a kind of a big deal, uh, and something definitely worthwhile to, uh, to check out because honestly, like it doesn't cost you any money and it just helps you. It, it helps determine, uh, who gets this corporate money. And, uh, and so there's our progressive organizations who I think we would agree are more worthy, uh, than others. So that's what I'm advocating bit.ly slash progressive slate. Now, as usual, just to wrap up the show, I want to thank a couple of members. Nathan B. signed up for a leftist membership back on February 1st, 2010, and actually paid for two full years in advance. He paid by check, so he just made it out for uh, for two full years in advance. And uh, Megan H. signed up on June 3rd, also signing up as a leftist for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Nathan and Megan and all of the members and donors who helped the show. All of the volunteers, I, I hate that I've been forgetting to thank all you guys, but all the volunteers who, uh, you know, clip clips and uh, help with the website and so on and so on. A little bit of data entry going on. Uh, to all of you guys who have been helping out, you know who you are. I just don't have the list right in front of me. Um, but thanks enormously, especially coming back from the holidays, uh, just remembering to stay with it and remember, oh, yeah, like holidays are over and best of luck still needs help. So. Huge thanks to all the volunteers for the show. 
Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay connected and spread the word online to everyone you know by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend